Welcome to Tempest, a history podcast. I'm Matt Smith. Museums, as you can probably gather, are one of my favourite places in the world to visit. But when I go to them, I can't help but wonder what they have that never makes it on display. And this story is about one such item. This store has all our large collection objects in it, so we've got everything from aeroplanes to trams to old horse-drawn hearses and carriages, motor vehicles, some of the earliest motor vehicles in Victoria up there on the, the racking way up in the air there. It can't be stressed how cool this space is. You know that scene at the end of the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Ark of the Covenant gets boxed up and pushed into a warehouse, where there's lots of other top secret items never to be seen again? Well, it's pretty much exactly like that, except minus the Nazis and the face melting, of course. So this is the main work area where we're doing all the physical work for the telescope restoration. I'm being shown around the museum's storage sheds by Matthew Churchward, the senior curator of engineering and transport at Museum Victoria. And I've come here in particular to see one rather large object. It's called the Great Melbourne Telescope. And if you're going to have the word great in your name, then by definition, you have to be something special. This telescope was built back in the 1860s, and it's now the subject of a restoration project. On the far wall, an original photograph of the telescope in situ at Melbourne Observatory. There's no complete set of engineering drawings surviving for this telescope. We're not even 100% sure they even ever had a complete set of working drawings when they originally made it. We have some technical diagrams from an early paper that was published, a scientific paper shortly after the telescope was built, describing it in detail. And we have a few key historical photographs of it in situ. And they're our key references. In 1868, Melbourne was just starting to establish itself as a city, and at the same time it was going through a bit of a scientific boom. It was decided it was a great location to build a world-class telescope. The Great Melbourne Telescope was really the, the last of the great sort of large early 19th century telescopes, if I can put it like that. This is Dr Richard Gillespie, Head of Humanities at Museum Victoria. In addition to knowing a lot about history, he's also the person who wrote a book called The Great Melbourne Telescope. There had been a lot of research done on the Northern Hemisphere building larger and larger telescopes with metal mirrors. And people were going to name William Herschel and Carolyn Herschel who did the first extensive surveys of nebulae of the faint clouds of light that may be star clusters, that might be clouds of gas, they weren't sure, but did gradual survey of the complete northern skies in the 1770s, 80s on. The idea was that by building a telescope in the southern hemisphere, you could observe the nebulae from a different perspective. It would tell us something about the character of them. Are they gaseous clouds where the, the gases change shape and so forth? Or are they fixed stars and clusters of stars just so distant that we can't define the stars and separate them out? This line of thinking really caught on in the young city of Melbourne, which was still trying to find a way to define itself. William Wilson, who was Professor of Mathematics at Melbourne University, was very keen to set up a large astronomical observatory in Melbourne and to bring a large telescope to kind of continue that research project. Initially, Wilson didn't have a lot of success with his claims, but by the time the 1860s came around, Melbourne was flush with wealth from the gold rush. And it was at this time that a young politician named George Verdon became the treasurer. Verdon had a special interest in astronomy, and for something like the Great Melbourne Telescope, that's a good man to have the keys to the vault. 
there was a change of government just as they were sending the contract in the agreement off and they were told by the new government not to send uh, the contract but they decided to send the contract off to Dublin anyway so that they could say, oh, I'm sorry, it's already sailed on that ship. <laughs> the telescope was designed and built in Ireland by master builder Thomas Grubb, at which point it was all boxed up and sent out to Melbourne. When it finally arrived, it proved to be a bit of a challenge. This was hardly an IKEA flat pack and it didn't come with any instructions. And although it was accompanied by an expert who assisted with the design, this was a delicate instrument and it needed perfect handling for it to work. Every new research telescope then, as now, is a one-off piece of work. So it was still built with a metal mirror, polished to a high degree, and the design of the telescope was quite innovative too, in that it was a fully steerable that could be pointed to any part of the heavens and really the observer and one assistant could move the telescope uh, around. So it was a highly innovative uh, design. In its operating condition, the telescope weighed somewhere in the order of 8 to 12 tonnes, and most of that weight was rotating when it moves. And yet it was all operated by hand first to get it into position, and then a clockwork drive was engaged, allowing it to track a feature across the night sky. It took something like two years for them to really work out its idiosyncrasies and how to use it most effectively. There were all kinds of distortions with the metal mirror and they couldn't quite work out how to ease the pressure and there needed to be very subtle adjustments in order to counteract that and get crystal clear images of what were very distant faint objects. The Great Melbourne Telescope became a symbol, not just of scientific Melbourne, but of marvellous Melbourne. Soon after it was installed in the grounds of the Botanical Gardens, long queues would be forming so visitors could see the stars for themselves. In fact, it became so popular that they printed tickets. They had problems with rowdy, drunken characters sort of turning up. But even on quiet nights when the astronomer was actually trying to do some observational work, there could be a knock at the door. It would turn out to be the equerry from Government House next door and saying, oh, the governor's just having a dinner party. He wondered if he could come over and he and the ladies could come and look at Venus, which, of course, the astronomer would drop everything and say, yes, by all means, come and look, because it was important to kind of keep the governor on side. The astronomers also found themselves at the beck and call of a demanding public giving evidence in court about how the weather was on different days, or being called up by journalists at all hours for comments on things. Whenever there was an event like a comet in the sky or an eclipse, there was a great sort of media attention. Journalists would often joke that they would go and ask him to comment about the weather or the latest drought and things, and the, the greatest storm would be in the astronomer's office as he tried to kick the journalist out rather than the weather report they were actually seeking. He particularly hated getting asked predictions as to whether it would be wet or not for the Melbourne Cup. Astronomy versus horse racing, I can kind of say that would annoy me too. Scientifically speaking, the Melbourne Telescope never really hit its mark. It was designed and built in a time before photography was at a point where it could be useful, and so anyone taking down observations had to rely on doing pencil drawings. And you had to wait for very clear nights for that to occur, and you might get 20 or 30 nights in the year where A, the moon wasn't up, B, it wasn't raining, C, the atmosphere was crystal clear and there weren't distorting atmospheric effects and remember you're in the city as well. It would take several nights of good viewing to actually prepare a detailed pencil drawing. 
By the 1890s, the telescope had become obsolete, and finally, after laying mostly dormant, it was dismantled during the Second World War and taken to Mount Stromlo in Canberra. There it served another life and was upgraded and reused until the Canberra bushfires of 2003. Essentially stripped off all the, the modern parts of the telescope and left the heavy Victorian engineering behind and of course swept through the rest of and destroyed most of the telescopes at Stromlo uh, that same day. The technology that stays behind is the, the hardy Victorian era technology and it's the new stuff that is just so disposable and can be stripped off so easily. So oh, they, they really built things to last when they made this telescope back then. Yeah, so the cast iron you know, sort of survived and steel, but all the modern technology just literally was vaporised. It was something like a thousand degrees centigrade, it's estimated, um, in those domes when they went up. But it has meant we can start to work with the remnants of the telescope and start to consider a restoration project. The restoration project is where Matthew Churchward and his team come in. And considering they don't have a working set of plans for the telescope, putting it back together is proving to be a bit of a challenge. Our aim is to restore the telescope basically to its original 1860s specifications and that's as far as possible using original materials and similar manufacturing techniques. So if we believe a component that we're missing was originally cast, we will have a new part cast, but before we can do that we have to create an engineering drawing and that's typically based on the historical photographs we've got, measuring existing parts that it perhaps matches against, scaling off the photograph, creating a new engineering drawing in CAD on the computer and then we get a pattern maker to make a pattern and we have a casting made. I imagine there's a lot of trial and error in working that way, especially from a photograph. You can go, okay, so we need a, a pivoty thing. I'm going to call it a pivoty thing. But you've got no idea on dimensions of that. You've maybe got some idea based yeah. on the existing parts here. but We can scale off the existing parts that we have that we can see in the photographs, but we have to allow for errors created, the parallax caused by the angle the photograph was taken, one of the beauties of these old pieces of technology, they were all made with the old imperial measurements. You know when you've got things more or less right, they tended to work with round inches, one inch, two inch, three inches. So if you measure dimension off and estimate it and it's coming out about an inch and a half, that looks like it probably would have been what it was. So you can then be reasonably happy you've got in the right ballpark. So hopefully soon, the Great Melbourne Telescope will have a new lease on life, fully working back in its original home in the grounds of the Botanical Gardens. My thanks to my guests today, Richard Gillespie and Matthew Churchward, both from Museum Victoria. You've been listening to the History Podcast Tempest, and a version of this story also aired on ABC Radio National, The Science Show. Now, looking up at the stars and wondering what they mean is hardly a new pursuit. So I asked my friend and Roman historian, Dr. Rhiannon Evans, what the Romans and the Greeks had to say about celestial bodies. Here's the tale that she and they had to tell. The Greeks and the Romans often saw patterns in the stars which are our modern constellations and they gave them names which we still use. So for example, the Great Bear is a constellation that they explain as being a woman called Callisto. Her name means the most beautiful. And the god Zeus fell in love with her and raped her and she bore a child. And as punishment for that, she was turned into a bear. 
And when her son grew up, he saw the bear and he was a hunter, so he was about to kill it with his bow and arrow. And then Zeus took pity on them and transformed them into the great bear and the hunter. And the hunter is forever following the bear in the sky. And my thanks to Rhiannon Evans for that. You can find this podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes, where you can subscribe, leave a review, or even just a star rating. The reviews and star ratings go a long way towards raising the ranking in iTunes and helping new people find out about the podcast. So please, if you've got the time, go and show Tempest a bit of love there. You can find myself and the podcast on social media. There's a Tempest page on Facebook, and I'm also on Twitter, at NightlightGuy. Encouraging tweets are always appreciated. You can also check out some photos of the old Melbourne telescope at the website, tempestpodcast.com. So until next time, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.